So I thought I'd speak about meditation. And as we, as you uh, settle into the retreat a little bit, some of the different ways we can approach meditation, some of the difficulties we might get into, and some of the skillfulness in how we approach it. So there's three kind of angles of that that I thought I'd speak about. Mm. Experience, right? Approaching meditation in terms of an emphasis on experience, meditative experiences. The emphasis also of technique and the emphasis of the, the process. And we, we, we tend, or I see people a lot, and I think sometimes that's inevitable in some ways, but we tend to give the emphasis in some, sometimes in unhelpful ways. If we look at the approaching meditation in terms of experience, the focus on or the hope for some particular experience, some special experience, some insightful experience, some liberating experience. And some of the language in the tradition Again, I, we've been speaking about some of the unfortunate translations. I think the, this word enlightenment is a very unfortunate and unhelpful translation. So I, try to, I prefer to use the word awakening as a, as a translation for bodhi. It's, it's, more, uh, it's more accurate anyway. But also awakening, it's just in terms of the grammar, it's present continuous, right? Enlightenment is a noun. Makes it seem like something, something to attain. Language like enlightenment or getting enlightened. And then she got enlightened. Lucky her. That's a, there's a lot of things wrong with that sentence. <laughs> the idea, we approach meditation in terms of hoping for some particular experience, the idea that some experience has the power to, um, to deliver something called enlightenment, maybe. And then presumably the expectation is after this wonderful enlightenment that there's going to be some kind of enlightened retirement. So I would say the, the, the concept of enlightenment, the concept of uh, something shifting and then there being some kind of state called enlightenment is just unhelpful. Let's not even speak about whether it's true or possible or not, because it's better to focus on what's useful rather than what's true, 
It's true, we get into a lot of mess sometimes, especially with the subtle things. But what's useful? I don't think the concept of enlightenment is useful. I think the sense of awakening is very useful. It's much, not least because it's much more available. Awakening is very available. Right? We can, you know, awakening present continuous. There's always the opportunity, like we were speaking about in terms of refuge in Buddha, refuge in being awake. It's always the possibility to be awake to this, to wake up more fully in the midst of this experience, whatever it is. To be awake to how body is, how mind is, how world is. To be awake to how I'm meeting my experience. To be as awake as I'm able to right now, and to, to whatever reactivity might be happening or might not be happening. There's endless possibility for awakening to what's happening. And uh, however uh, free and fluid one's life does or doesn't feel, however far along a kind of imaginary sense of a path one might be, doesn't that still the same possibility? There's no limit to the capacity to wake up to this, because this is infinite. Experience is infinite. Life is infinite. Consciousness is infinite. The universe that we find ourselves in is infinite. And so, awakening is infinite. Actually, this idea, even though it's a very lofty kind of concept, enlightenment, it turns out to be very limited. One isn't enlightened, and then enlightenment, and one is enlightened. A very small view, actually. Right? It's like, like an on or off switch, is or isn't. It's not like that. There's many, many ways to awaken. There's many aspects to awakening. That's why people, and you may know this for yourselves, you may have seen this in others, people can be very awake, very wise, very clear, very spacious, very skillful, very free in some areas of life, and very deluded, very confused, very reactive, very uh, tight actually in other areas of life. There's not much room for that in this, in this on or off switch of enlightenment. If it, was, if it was on or off like that, we would walk around being deluded and then a few people would switch on the light, enlightenment. And then enlightened. As if, and that's the hope often when we approach it with that kind of view, as if this magic thing called enlightenment would, would solve all the problems, or the messiness of you know, being here with this kind of body-mind thing going on. But life remains messy. Life is messy for you, for me, for us, for Buddha. Anyone, everyone. And yet, we can awaken. We can wake up to this. So when we approach meditation in terms of experience, 
one thing for us just to reflect on is what's my view of, of where this, this, this practice is going? And what a view might I have about the, the right kind or the best kind or the, the kind of experience that I'm looking for or hoping for or trying to get to? It was very nice. Some of you said last night, oh, I have no expectations about the retreat. And I thought, that's a very nice way to start the retreat. I don't really believe you, but it's a very nice way to start. I don't mean to be dismissive when I say I don't believe you. Just, you know, it's, it's, big, it's, it's a tall order to really have no expectations. We might have no expectations in general. We say, oh, come to the retreat, no expectations, let's see. Good. But of course, moment by moment, the opportunity just to track whatever expectations arise, just, you know, even in subtle ways, expectations of how body should feel, how mind should cooperate, how a first day of retreat should go, how long I ought to be able to sit for. You know, what lunch uh, should be like, or, or whatever it might be. It's not wrong that we have expectations, but it's, it's, it's helpful just to see the way expectations arise and form some sense of what my experience should be like, and the friction that creates. If we really have no expectations, then there will be, can be, no friction. No friction with life, no friction with one's sense of self, no friction with others, however unreasonable others' behaviour is, no friction with life. So, if there's absolutely no friction, then okay, I believe you, no expectations. <laughs> and we approach meditation, as I say, in that way of we tend to measure our practice against the experience that that we you know that we hope for. We can actually l- l- learn a lot about what about our delusions, really, about our delusions about the nature of freeness, awakening, enlightenment, if you like. Because of course we can only ever have illusions about about freeness or we can have the the actual taste of freeness but our views about the ideas we have of what my mind would be if I was let's say fully awake what my what my life would be like what it would feel like what it would look like how it would be expressed if I was fully awake fully free gone beyond all reactivity etc the ideas that we fabricate there can only be erroneous ideas. It's, we just, it's, one cannot imagine what one hasn't experienced. Right? You can't imagine it precisely. When you taste something, oh, then you, you know it immediately, truly. Right? The example I often give, maybe some of you heard before, it's like a fruit. If I bring some exotic fruit that you've never seen before, I, I'll just try to describe it to you, and then you try to imagine what it tastes like. Right? You can't. 
You can, you can only, because you can't imagine what you've never experienced, you can only imagine with reference to what you already know, what you've already experienced. So I say, well, it's a little bit like, you know, pineapple, or but a little bit peachy, and with hints of mango. And you go, oh, yeah. Well, as soon as they say a hints of mango, oh, yeah, I know what that is. I've got a reference point for mango. I've got a reference point for pineapple. So we can imagine in terms of what we already know, and so therefore we imagine the fr the, the fr a freer way of being. We imagine a completely wide-open, spacious, available, undemanding, undefended, undistracted mind in accordance with what we already know. But the way our the way we actually awaken, the way we actually free up, means that we're moving into territory that we haven't known. And as we move into that territory, we, we taste it. Like, you know, if I just gave up trying to experience, trying to describe this fruit and just handed pieces out. Oh. Right? You taste it. Oh. Oh. And then, you know, not because of the reference to ideas about it, because of the taste. I'm invited to, to taste our experience. To recognize that whatever reactivity arises. To see how oh, we can soften, relax, drop the reactivity. And increasingly, to, as we wake up more and more, to taste the freeness of our experience. But... As I say, when we approach through experience, we tend to reduce the taste of that freeness to some idea. The experience would be like this, or could be like that, or should be like such and such. One of the ways we do that is with reference to previous experience. Maybe the so-called deepest experience or the most peaceful experience, or the most expansive experience. Maybe just, you know, some moment, oh, on the last retreat, or whenever it was. Sometimes people will hang on to an experience, just an experience, for years. It's just an experience. It's ironic that we fixate on special experiences in meditation. Because actually, a lot of what meditation is about is just noticing how experience is fleeting, unreliable, mostly out of our control, and just comes and goes. And we say, oh yes, I'm practicing that, I'm recognizing all experience comes and goes, yes. And then I have a good one, really good one, really peaceful one, really spacious one. Like, oh, that! That's, that's what it should be like. That's the right kind of experience. That's the best kind of experience. That's a real meditation experience. He's not. He's just an experience. I remember somebody on a retreat with... With one of my teachers telling in, in you know, it's quite touching in quite beautiful detail about this very, very expansive, liberating, wonderful, wonderful experience they'd had 12 years previously. 
And they were very, very invested in how wonderful. They kind of built a spiritual persona around being this person who'd had this very fantastic cosmic experience 12 years ago. And Christopher, having listened to the person describing in great detail, and he said, oh, I think it might be better if you'd never had that experience. Because of the, you know, the fixation on it. It's understandable that we fixate on experience. We feel like often we go along with a kind of narrow bandwidth of experience. Right? Like the horse with blinkers we were speaking about last night. We go along with a bandwidth, a bandwidth of experience that's basically defined by me and my. I, me and my. I'm doing this. How, how things affect me, what I want, my you know, body, mind, thoughts, world, relationships, etc. And that's, you know, so that's the, the, the boundaries of our experience are the boundaries generally of I, me and my. And then we attend with a certain sensitivity, a certain subtlety. We learn to kind of rest into experience in the way we were describing this morning. And that has the effect sometimes of softening the boundaries, of thinning out the boundaries, and therefore widening the bandwidth. And then there's some moments, some beautiful experience where where I, me, and mine doesn't really seem very relevant. It's just a little detail that's going on. There's a habit, my, me, me, a habit of self-importance. But either the habit just drops out for some time, or one's, it becomes kind of transparent, and one just is able to see through the habitual reinforcing of I, me, and mine to, to uh, oh, in such a way that we can actually let in more bandwidth, more of life. And somehow... Suddenly, the feel of the wind and the sound of the birds and the sense of the earth beneath our feet and just the miracle of being here at all and being conscious doesn't seem to be my property. It's not my sound, my hearing, my body. It's just as a kind of wide openness, inclusivity, a taste of a kind of a free relationship or an expansive relationship, an intimacy with all of life, maybe. Beautiful, those moments. Beautiful, but fundamentally, no big deal. Just an experience. Beautiful when it comes, certainly to let oneself drink in the quality of expansiveness, or the quality of peace, or the quality of clarity, or whatever it is in the way one's experience opens up. But also important to let it go. It has to go. It's, just, it's an experience. That's what experience does. It arises, it has its little hurrah, and it goes. And sometimes we make the... We make, we too much out of it. One way of making too much out of it is trying to get it back again. And those experiences never arise out of me organizing them. 
making them happen, they usually arise in a, some wonderful moment where I stop trying to make things happen, which is how you know, the boundaries of I, me, and my soften a little bit. So there's a kind of comic element to the fact that, oh, this wonderful experience comes along and it goes, and then I try to organize it to come back. Another way we, we get into trouble with those experiences is imagining that that's what it would be like. We, in other words, we reduce the vision of liberation, the vision of uh, possibility of this practice to a particular experience. Because that experience opens up and there's a great feeling of expansion or of freeness or of intimacy or of a sense of familiar sense of self just fading or dropping or, or disintegrating. And because of the, the, the freeness that comes up, we say, oh, if I really ad advanced in my practice or something, or if I really uh, managed to, to uh, you know, if I was more free, it would feel like that all the time. No. There is no that all the time. Experience comes and goes, including any particular exper expansive experience or peaceful experience. It, it, it can't be that experience always feels a certain way. It isn't that it, there isn't an enlightenment there isn't an enlightened experience that's, that's like this. So again, we can get into trouble in kind of, in, in making too much of those experiences, either in, in, in according them a certain kind of permanence, right? My mind would always be like that. Or, as I say, in trying to get them back again. I mean, how fundamentally impossible is it to get an experience back again? Have you ever managed to get any single experience back again? Have you ever had the same experience twice? Impossible. Everything that you've lived until now is utterly, irretrievably gone. And we say, oh yeah, but that one, I want to get that one back. Good luck. I don't wish to be dismissive of the power, of the potency, the beauty, the depth of, of those kind of um, you know, very expansive experiences or very peaceful experiences or whatever. But it's just a point to what we easily do with them after the fact that actually starts to corrupt them. Right, they're trying to get it back, they're according them some permanence. The real value of, the, of those moments where experience opens up in that way is actually the way it shows us a, a possibility. It's like a tasting of the, of the fruit, right? to use the, the example I gave earlier. It's like, oh yeah, I know something about what expansiveness can taste like. So rather than drawing conclusions about it, rather than trying to get it back, it becomes kind of a reference point to us. I know that even though right now I might be caught up within the boundaries of I, me, and my, I start to be able to see how that's just the way I'm caught up right now. 
It's not actually, those, those boundaries aren't actually true delineators of consciousness or of experience or of life, of me. So the experience can't be kept, right? The experience has to disappear. But the insight that may be there, the recognition of the quality, that doesn't have to disappear. The intensity of it may fade with the, with the experience. But that's what's precious. The experience isn't so precious. It's lovely, yes, but it's gone. It's kind of as if the insight comes wrapped in very nice golden wrapping paper. Right? And the golden wrapping paper is the, the experience, right? The feeling of, oh, so expansive or so blissful or so peaceful. And just like you were, and those, you know when you give young children some gift and you've carefully chosen the gift and you know, think it's nice for the kid, and they just like the wrapping paper. Have you ever seen that? The kids, oh look, they like the way it scrunches, they like the way it shines, they ditch the toy and just kind of fixate on the wrapping paper. It's like that with experience. You get caught up in the shininess of the experience and then also with the kind of self-identification with the experience. Oh, you know, I, I've had this great experience. I, I felt really expansive. I felt really peaceful. It's like we get caught up with this shiny self-image. And the more one focuses on the experience, the more you kind of you, you lose something. Let the experience have its natural life cycle. Let yourself rather just feel the, the, the goodness, the beauty of, of the insight that comes alive. Of what's possible, an expansiveness that's possible, that I know the taste of. And then you leave your experience alone to do what it will do. To expand when it expands, and to actually to contract when it contracts. The tendency to you know fixate in that way on those special experiences, and the irony, of course, is that our practice really invites us just to care for this experience, not that experience, that special experience, that remembered experience, that hoped-for experience. No, this experience. If we really don't have any expectations about experience, then it becomes increasingly clear to us that this experience is the direct portal. This is the experience to be awake to, to enter into. This experience actually, by its nature, expresses all the qualities that we hope for. This experience has as its nature an expansiveness, a freeness, a naturalness of unfolding. This experience isn't defined by I and me and my and my relationship to it. But we can't, we can't get to that understanding. We can't make those boundaries disappear. We can't force this experience to be expansive. But what we can do is we put aside the experiences we think we ought to be having or could be having and we enter into this experience. We care for this experience. We allow this experience. 
And that which we care for, that which we make room for, that which we enter into by its nature will open up. Will, will show us its nature, will reveal its nature. And then this approach to meditation of technique. The ways we can fixate a little bit on technique. And you know, it's, it's useful, right? It's useful to have uh, to have some reference point. We use the technique. Technique might be um, being present in the breathing. And the idea of that in is that the that which we're focusing on, in this case breath, it serves as a kind of mirror to reflect ourselves back to us. You have the intention, okay, I'm going to be just present with the breath. And then mind goes here and there. And because you have the intention to be present in your breath, you, you see all the ways you're not present with the breath, or you see all the ways your attention is kind of partial. You see the tendency to, oh yeah, the breath, yeah, I'm breathing in, okay, I'm present enough for this breath, I'll just chat to myself for the rest of it. Oh, I've got to the top now. Okay, out breath. Yeah, I'm here with the out breath. Good. Yeah, I'll carry on that conversation I was having with myself. You know, kind of persuading ourselves that we're present, but there's a sort of partialness to it. You get to see that. Right? So the technique is like a, a technique is often like a mirror to 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 show yourself what your mind's like. And the technique has a has a point to it, right? So the breath, as well as being able to act like a mirror, also can have a kind of you know unifying effect on body and mind. When we start to get busy, caught up in some thought, breath changes, and therefore by recognizing and just oh, allowing breath to soften and refine its natural rhythm, it can have an effect on just allowing the thought form to dissolve. But we easily get fixated on the te- on the technique, and uh, how do we fixate on technique? Usually, in terms of success, thinking that if I was really, you know, if I was really doing this technique right, you know, I would have some kind of high percentage level of success. Or we think that that's what um, the fruition of a technique is: is just being able to do it right. In other words, if I really got good at meditation, I would just be present with my breath all the time. We were speaking about this morning, like, so what? Do we imagine that that's what the Buddha really found out, sitting under the tree, was how to be present with his breath all the time? Is that what you want to, you know, be the fruits of these two weeks? You go back to your family and friends and your Dharma group and, oh, you've been on two weeks of retreat. Oh, what happened? Oh, I, I learned to be with my breathing. What kind of life skill is that? <laughs> I mean, of course, it is a life skill. But again, it's, it, it, it's how easy, 
how easily we imagine, you know, that's what the deepening of meditation would be. Because we're talking about, okay, being, let's be present with the breath. And if you, if you leave, come back and be present with the breath. And so we imagine that that's what should happen over time. I should just get more and more and more and more present with the breath. But that's, you know, that's not actually what we really care about. What we care about is freeness. What we care about is an intimacy with life that allows us to resolve the friction. Be more fluid and free in the way we meet what's happening, in the way we ex- understand what's happening, and the way we can respond to what's happening. So important, I think, just to check the relationship one has, the relationship you might have with technique. And see how you can engage really sincerely with a technique, to use, so you can use the usefulness of a technique without that pressure creeping in that says, you know, I ought to get better and better at this technique. And then, of course, there's all the measuring of, you know, which technique and which techniques are better or, or, or best. I tend to encourage people, you know, when practicing with breathing, I really encourage people a lot to use their belly as a kind of gathering place for experience. I think it's very helpful. We're often overactivated in the higher centers and just oh, letting your attention drop down and learning to gather your attention lower down. Gathering your attention in your belly, actually waking up the belly center until one actually, and so that you can kind of feel the sort of the, the groundedness, the solidity, a kind of oh, here. It seems very, very helpful to me. And when I was first taught meditation, I was, I was taught, like maybe many of you were, to use nostrils as a reference point. And it's hard for me to know, you know, whether using the belly as a reference point was just a more suitable technique for me than nostrils. Because I'm not really, you know, I, my I can even only really reference my own experience. My sense is that it's not just for me. My sense is that it's for, for most people, actually. Most people that I, that I meet and work with, most people who've, who've kind of grown up and been acculturated in the ways that we have to be quite cerebral in our, in our processing of experience. But it's actually it's a helpful orientation to technique to decerebralize one's processing. Right? Just dropping down, dropping down, dropping down. But you know, you have to see what's most suitable. The it seems to me that actually using the the contact of air at the nostrils can often lead more quickly to a more concentrated state. But it also seems to me that's not what's most important. And so it seems to me that actually a kind of sensitive, grounded, embodied sensitivity to experience is a more helpful meditative tool, actually, than um, a very concentrated, one-pointed mind. Certainly, I think it's more helpful in terms of how then we integrate uh, our practice in the wider field of our life. Right? It's, there's, n- there's no moment 
in any, any situation, any uh, moment, any activity, can always benefit from us being more fully embodied. I don't think that's the case with being more one-pointedly concentrated, right? Like crossing the road, for example. Crossing the road definitely benefits from being more embodied, more sensitive, more kind of spatially aware, more in tune with what's going on around you, present in your experience. Being one-pointed on your nostril as you cross the road is a terrible idea. So, of course, we're not crossing roads here, we're just meditating. So, you know, one might be choosing to use nostrils. It's, um, it's conducive to a certain kind of ekogata, is a Pali word, it literally means one pointed kind of attention. And and has to see for yourself then in the, in the approach in terms of technique, what seems, what's, what seems useful? If one's trained, as I did for the first few years, really using the nostrils as a, as a focus point for breathing, and then I started to recognize the kind of, the, the way that kept a certain kind of activation going energetically in the higher center, in the head center, and how oh, it was helpful to drop the attention down. It, you know, the habit was there, the habit of technique was there. So I would take my attention down, and it would kind of just jump back up by itself, back to the nose. Nostrils, oh, that's how I know it, Yana. So, which is the best technique? You know, it's a kind of strange, silly question. Different techniques, different uh, usefulness. But in the end, what's most important, I would say, is, you know, we use technique that seems conducive or helpful. But that technique isn't the main way we're approaching our practice. That technique is secondary, actually. Presence is primary. And, and like I was underlining this morning in describing the Buddha's meditation technique, right? Uh, meditation instructions, sorry. You first find the root of a tree or a similar suitable place. Set up a suitable posture. You establish yourself in presence. And then you take up some meditation object, you apply your attention into some area of experience and let your attention gather and settle. But establishing oneself in presence. The more one can establish oneself in presence, basically what does that mean? It means knowing that you're here. Knowing what's being known. Here, experiencing, and you're kind of alive in the midst of your experience. The more one's grounded in a kind of fundamental awakeness of mind, the more one can make good use of whatever technique. But if one's not, if the presence isn't primary, then you end up fixating on the technique. And then fixating on the technique, like I say, ends up being in terms of success. Or how much am I with this? Or how much am I not? Oh, I was trying to be with my breathing, but I kept on getting caught up. I would think I was only with the breath for maybe three breaths. And then I was gone. And then it was three breaths, he said, by me. It was only one and a half. And like we were saying this morning, the, the, the actual, the whole process, the coming and going, it's all part of, of how our practice kind of enriches and deepens. But 
presence, primary. Technique, secondary. And then that really leads on to the third approach to meditation in terms of just the process of meditation. That's the, the, the aspect which I think is most significant, most powerful and most important. But it's the one that gets the least attention often. Often what gets the most attention, because it's easier to give attention to, the first two, the experience, oh yes, I want some great experience, and technique, because that's how we describe meditation often. Okay, you do this, bring your attention to your breathing or to sensations. So it's easier for us to get a handle on and to understand what, you know, in terms of experience or in terms of technique. The process of meditation is a little more subtle. The process of meditation takes a little more time to recognize. But hey, you all have some practice history. You have uh, a process that you can look back on and see the way in which it's, it's, uh, it's had its benefits and its transformation. Interestingly, you may also be able to see how that transformation has happened despite your poor technique. <laughs> right? Despite continuing to fail badly at, at, uh, <laughs> at the technique of meditation. Very helpful to see how transformation happens despite the quality of our meditation, not because of the quality of our meditation. So I go along and I you know, keep sort of generally trying to attend to breathing, but quite honestly, there's so much else going on all the time, I'm just touching into it and touching. And I look back over the months of, of doing this low-grade, sloppy meditation practice, or the years of doing, or the decades of doing this sloppy meditation, and I see the goodness and the beauty and the transformation of it. And I see how I've gotten kind of less reactive over time, or I see how I've, I'm still quite reactive actually, but I'm more able to recognize it, more able to kind of intervene skillfully when I see that I've become reactive, etc., very, very helpful to see how the process of meditation has a certain natural goodness to it, a natural deepening to it, a natural onward leadingness to it. When we see that, it helps us to trust it. And certainly in, the, in, the, in terms of being in a retreat like this. And then, okay, so how do you really support the process of meditation? Well, you, you're, you engage as sincerely as you can without measuring the quality, without measuring the technique, without measuring in terms of success and failure. You just engage as sincerely as you can. That point was a really crucial uh, juncture in my own practice when I was, became more interested in just the sincerity of how I'm walking right now or the sincerity of sitting here. In other words, the willingness to engage. And then, oh, I've been caught up for 20 minutes in some sexual fantasy. Oh, and now I see it. And then, oh, just the willingness to engage, the willingness to not give myself a hard time for it, not imagine it shouldn't be happening, but also the willingness to not keep feeding it anymore. Willingness to just say, oh yeah, mine's like this. Oh, 
this is what it's like when I've been spent 20 minutes in some sexual fantasy. I'm all hot and bothered. Right? <laughs> okay. Just where, the moment where you come back to yourself, it's like you get just to be sincere in that moment and to trust this is the process of my practice. Nothing's lost. I went, I went, I must have been 91, 92. I'd been um, doing a, a, a retreat up in the, in the Himalayas. And um, at the end of this retreat, an old f school friend came out to meet me in India. And he'd been, we'd been out of contact for a couple of years. And he'd been reading Zen. And we exchanged some letters and found out that we'd both gotten into meditation. I was very happy. So he came out to meet me. And um, his father had an old university friend who'd gone off to India and joined some kind of ashram. And we decided, and the, he came with the address and we decided to look this place up. And we went up there and it was a, it was a very, very interesting place. It was an Indian, no, it was a British teacher who'd kind of become, I mean, he'd been there, he was in his 80s. Ashita, and he'd been uh, he'd been there, I think, since the war. He was there in the British government uh, during the Raj the occupation, and then he'd stayed and studied with a teacher and become, uh, you know, he was teaching himself. And there was like about five couples there, and all the couples were Indian women married with British men, and they were all quite strange and eccentric. Right? The teacher was really. Really very interesting, very inspiring. I had some great contact with him, some great uh, dialogues with him, some great explorations with him. And the place was very interesting. It was, uh, they built their own homes there from the local Himalayan cedar. And they were quite self-sufficient in this beautiful valley above um, Almora. But the, the people who were living in the ashram and ostensibly were the students of this teacher... Like I say, they were a bit strange, a bit eccentric. They didn't seem very, uh, very wise <laughs> or uh, free at all. They seemed quite neurotic, especially all these English men that were living there were really extraordinarily neurotic. So once I said to the teacher, it was a little you know, cautious to say it, but it just felt true for me. I said, hey, look, you, here you are. You've been here for years. All these people are living and practicing here. They don't seem to have made much progress. <laughs> I said, that, you know, they seem quite neurotic, quite reactive, and, uh, you know, what's going on? And he said, he said, well, you know, nothing's lost. Nothing's lost. He said, and he went on to just speak about the, the process of practice. And it was very beautiful. You know, I wasn't really feeling particularly judgmental. It was more I was trying to understand for myself, right, like how these people... But he, he was just, like, rather than expecting that the students be a certain way or, or uh, attain some kind of spiritual uh, something, it's just very clear that nothing gets lost. Supporting, you know, certainly himself, just being as sincere as he could in his supporting them and trusting the process of their practice. Someone asked the Buddha once, you know, all these people doing this practice with you, if, how come they're all here, they're all doing the same practice, but some of them seem very wise and free and some of them not so much? 
Right? If they're all doing the same practice, how come they're not all getting the same results? And the Buddha said, well, look, some people go along the path very quickly and with very little difficulty. Others go along quickly, but with a lot of difficulty. Others go on slowly, but without much difficulty. And some go along very slowly and with great difficulty. <laughs> we don't get to choose that bit, right? You know, whether one attributes that to karmic formations or what, whatever it is, we just, we've got what we've got. This is the material we've got to work with, right? We've got the history that we've got. We've got the, the amount of our adult life we, and, and childhood that we've kind of invested in, in cultivating various patterns more or, or less consciously. And now here we are. And what we have now is we've got practices and teachings. Right? We've got techniques. But we've mostly what we've got is our sincerity. And you just to trust the process. The process is liberating. And the more sincere you are, the more you get out of the way and allow the process to work on you. It's not, we don't get to decide whether we go along quickly or slowly or with great difficulty or little difficulty. We just get to orientate as sincerely as we can to my willingness to sit here with this, my willingness to walk with this, my willingness to kind of attend in as gentle way and as clear way and as an impeccable way as I can, moment by moment. And whatever sincerity we generate, it certainly does, isn't lost. And becomes part of the the unstoppable momentum of liberation. So I offer these reflections in hopefully in the service of that momentum to support the goodness and the sincerity and the process of your practice, of our practice here together. <laughs>